0: African Highlands is an area of landscape essentially between Loch Ness and the west coast of Scotland looking over towards the Isle of Skye. It's about 500,000 acres so it's like a small country. Welcome to another episode of Rewilding
1: the World with Ben Goldsmith. We're going to the Scottish Highlands to meet my hero Steve Micklewright of Trees for Life. Scotland's fable highlands are not quite what we think they are. Once upon a time, the great Caledonian forest stretched from coast to coast and was famous as far as Rome for its wildness and size. It teemed with wildlife, big animals, wolves, bears, lynx, elk, red deer, wild cattle. A lot of that is now gone. In fact, those dramatic vistas you see when you go on holiday in the northern part of Britain are pretty bleak. They've lost so much of what was once there. Organisations like Trees for Life are looking to put that back and build a whole new economy around rewilding nature-based tourism, natural capital. Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Tell us a little bit about the Highlands as they once might have been.
0: Well, I guess, Ben, if you go right back to the end of the last ice age, eight ten thousand 10,000 years ago, uh, Scotland gradually became covered with forest and was full of life, full of all of the animals that you'd expect in our sort of part of the world, from moose and elk and wolves and bears and lynx and all these sorts of creatures, creating this kind of vibrant landscape of life. And over time, Partly due to some climate change, we had the arrival of peatlands in Scotland, so we then started to get a bearer landscape. But for many, many, many thousands of years, Scotland was a very wooded landscape, and over time, as humans started to to get involved, that woodland and that forest had disappeared. So when you go to the Scottish Highlands and you think what a beautiful, wonderful, lovely landscape it is, and it is beautiful and it is dramatic, it's actually quite degraded because it's not anywhere near a natural state.
1: And was there physical deforestation? Were, were the trees cut from the highlands, for example, to build navy ships?
0: That's right I mean I live very close to the mouth of the Spey which runs all the way down from the Cairngorms and uh, if you go there now there's a lovely dolphin centre there but not that long ago it was one of the major shipbuilding areas of Scotland because logs and timber were were sent down the Spey and, and used for shipbuilding so back in the days when we had a large navy dependent on wooden ships a lot of that timber came from Scotland so the land was cleared of trees for human use. And it was cleared of
1: people as well, the, the legends of the Highland people, the, the indigenous of, Scot- of the Scottish uplands and, and their way of life, which was absolutely enmeshed with the natural environment around them. And the, the nomadic, semi-nomadic grazing of native cattle in those vast Caledonian woodland mosaics, that was all destroyed to make way for sheep, really, wasn't it?
0: yeah that's right Ben so uh, a couple couple of hundred years ago um, there was a trend to if you like start sheep farming in the Highlands of Scotland and that then resulted in people being cleared from the land because the traditional way of living was small little communities and hamlets people practicing what we call transhumance moving animals up and down the mountain by season that all got swept away very very quickly in order to uh, do more commercial sheep farming so not only is the Highlands quite a degraded landscape from ecology if you look closely you can see evidence of settlements that have long gone because of those highland clearances
1: people have talked about the the the, the idea of keystone species you Now, th- those species which play a disproportionately vital role in holding the whole ecosystem together and i've heard it said that alongside the native cattle and, and their wild predecessors in the highlands the other keystones were uh, the wolf which kept deer numbers in check. The beaver, which maintained water in the landscape by building small dams along the streams and creeks, and the wild boar or or domestic pigs, which fulfilled a gardening function. And it seems to me like all four of those keystones were withdrawn at roughly the same time
0: yeah i mean a lot of the big predators all disappeared you know the last wolf i think was uh, killed in scotland you know two hundred fifty, three hundred years ago now uh, and that kind of marked the end of that process of losing all of those uh, larger animals that make a difference to the landscape because they're able through their size to have an impact on what what trees are growing what what the landscape looked like and that has an impact on all the other creatures uh, further down the chain so we lost all of those but there are moves now to start to bring some of these back not just because they sort of should be here, but because of the function that they do in the ecology. Like you say, beavers building dams that help salmon and help uh, invertebrates to live in, in the landscape. Um, the idea possibly that, that wild cattle might come back and help to turn over the landscape so trees can grow more naturally. That sort of thing is starting to be uh, quite lively uh, in terms of a debate in Scotland.
1: And wild boar back in Scotland as well, I've read.
0: They are indeed. Uh, somebody I know shot one the other day because they're, they're, they've been reintroduced, uh, uh, you know, or released by mistake. Uh, and, and it's perfectly okay to go out and shoot them. And they've been moving around parts of the African Highlands, doing their job of churning up the landscape a little bit. But obviously, some people would would like to make a sustainable livelihood from shooting boar. And, and I hope one day that when we get a better relationship with those sorts of animals, that, that's where we go to that the idea that we have wild boar in our landscape, and we we can sustainably hunt them for food is is where we would like to get to because that's really commonplace all over europe
1: steve tell me how you came to be in the afric highlands and, and what your vision is
0: there uh, I've, I've kind of worked in conservation all my life uh, but before I came to Scotland I was in Malta working for an organisation called BirdLife Malta uh, on the awful kind of illegal hunting of birds that goes on over there and I, lo- I was looking for a place to live that was quiet and less stressful and a more positive thing and so I ended up it- with Trees for Life as their CEO because re- it was all about rewilding and George Monbiot had just written a book called Feral, which was really visionary about where rewilding could take us. And it just felt really positive. I just wanted to kind of, you know, I suppose my last ever job in conservation would be something that would be positive and try to bring back the sort of relationship with nature that we should have. And we haven't really lost for that long, but we seem to have really lost it now. uh, And we need to really, really bring that back, that we work together with nature instead of just destroying it all the time. And rewilding for me... Is wholly positive and it's just brilliant to work on something that's wholly positive. So, what are the Afric Highlands? So, Afric Highlands is an area of landscape essentially between Loch Ness and the west coast of Scotland, looking over towards the Isle of Skye. Um, It's about 500,000 acres, so it's like a small country. Um, And the idea of Afric Highlands is that we look at a big landscape and we begin to restore it we begin to rewild it so we work with the landowners to try to restore the peatlands and the wild forest that should be there and we also look at the ecological processes that are missing from that landscape like the work that beavers do and we try to bring those back and on top of that by working with nature and restoring nature, we start to bring back some of those natural livelihoods, those nature-based uh, businesses, if you like, that can help people to thrive in that landscape. Because probably in the whole of Africa Highlands, if you take out a couple of smaller towns, there's barely 3,000 people in that landscape. And there could be many, many more. And they could be making a fantastic, thriving life in that landscape, working with nature. So the vision is restoring nature for people and and nature itself, and the climate, and showing how we can work with nature.
1: The Scottish Highlands has quite concentrated land ownership, in the sense that um, a handful of very large landowners own a series of enormous estates mm. on which the principal economic activity is deer stalking. And that's that and the absence of predators such as wolves means that there's a really high number of deer through through the Highlands. And those deer prevent the regeneration of of woodland and young saplings get eaten before they have a chance how how do you approach that issue how do you deal with deer control especially in a landscape that's privately owned by a handful of very large landowners who may or may not be friendly to what you
0: want to do yeah deer numbers have been an issue in scotland for decades and decades and it's never got resolved properly the balance is is a bit wrong. So there are very high deer densities, as you say, and those very high deer numbers without the presence of predators result in deer preventing the landscape from recovering. So bizarrely, if you like, rewilding uh, requires that we reduce those numbers of deer across the landscape so that the trees and the vegetation that should be there can start to grow and we've tried to do that and we continue to try to do that through discussion with the landowners and over many 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 years long before I was, uh, even I was arrived in Scotland there's been a very long-term debate about getting the numbers right so that the landscape can recover and also, people can make their living from deer stalking, and the two are not mutually exclusive. So if you go to places like southern Norway, which is very similar in terms of its landscape to Scotland, but the, the, the forest has recovered there, deer stalking, deer hunting is, is a tradition that continues and is, is, is thriving. And so where we need to get to with the landowning community is to make it really clear that rewilding is not a threat to, to that part of what you want to do with your estate – the two can work together. And that's a long-term process. And on top of that, the Scottish government is starting to move towards saying, if you own very large areas of land in Scotland, not only can you benefit from that land personally, but you almost have like a duty of delivering what the public need, the public benefit. And the public benefit these days, in terms of large estates, is about recovery of wildlife, biodiversity, and helping with the climate crisis. So Scottish government is also starting to put pressure on landowners to en- enable them to reduce their deer numbers.
1: The fashion seems to be changing as far as I can make out. So- someone once described to me that deer stalking in Scotland is like shooting cows in Hyde Park versus in southern Norway, for example, where you stalk all day through a more wooded landscape and you're lucky if you get one stag. Um, and, and it it strikes me that perhaps there's less each year of demand for that kind of activity that kind of easy shooting um, but also what about the economic incentives that there's a burgeoning voluntary biodiversity and carbon offsetting market and i've heard of landowners taking quite large payments for restoring caledonian woodland in exchange for those carbon offsets Wh- which is the more important driver of change
0: among the landowners in in the afric highlands so i think it depends very much on the landowner. So some landowners love their tradition of deer stalking and are very attached to that. The debate with them is around the two are complementary and actually red deer are a woodland creature if you go to norway or anywhere else you'll find them in woodland so how do we change deer stalking so it becomes much more of a woodland hunting experience than a hunting on on rather bare moorland but for many other estate owners they're looking at their bottom line and for me being able to invest Uh, be able to receive natural capital payments as we call them for restoring forest and peatlands is about how you diversify your business how you diversify your estate so you have a number of different income streams that make your estate much more sustainable as a business and of course many estates rely on income being pumped in from the other business activities of the landowner because it's very hard to make them pay in scotland anyway so there's a business angle and there is a kind of cultural tradition and we have to work with both of those
1: And what about the wider community in the Highlands? We see polls in the papers that suggest that the people of Scotland broadly want to see rewilding happen in in the Scottish uh, uplands. But change is frightening, especially among rural communities that have a deeply ingrained way of life that's been in place for several generations. So how do you deal with those that live and work in the Highlands, aside from the landowners? Yeah,
0: that's a a really good question, Ben. A a lot of people who have these more traditional livelihoods like deer stalking, grouse small management, uh, say that if we rewild that landscape, they won't be there and they won't have a job. And it's another kind of highland clearance is about to happen. And I would argue that because actually we don't have top predators, we don't have lynx or wolves or bears or any of these creatures in Scotland, and there's very little chance I think we will see, you know, particularly wolves or bears in my lifetime at least, we are going to need a top predator and that top predator is humans so we're going to need more deer stalkers and not less deer stalkers and those people that manage these these very bare grouse moors are actually experts often in the wildlife and the nature that is 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 present on those grouse moors and we need their their knowledge and their skills in order to be able to change that landscape so I I think if you were a deer stalker and perhaps you're in your 20s going into deer stalking just now, you'd probably see that actually I'm going to be deer stalking for most of my career for rewilding benefits, not for traditional hunting. Whereas if you're a deer stalker, perhaps in your 50s and 60s, my sort of age, you'll be thinking, oh, my my traditional career is going to disappear and my kids won't be able to do this sort of work. Well, yes, they will. But it will be for a different objective. And that's the story that we struggle to reach out to those communities with, is that this is about change. But the job will still very much be the same, same job that you've always done.
1: On the subject of predators, um, I mean, I've always thought it ludicrous how afraid the British are of creatures like lynx and wolves. You just need to cross the channel and you find expanding populations of wolves across every European country. There are wolves in the municipal precincts of Paris, Amsterdam, Madrid, Luxembourg, even. Um, So the idea that there isn't habitat and there isn't the possibility of coexistence with these animals that are typically very shy and certainly not dangerous to people is completely absurd. Um, How are we going to get predators back into these ecosystems? I mean, lynx, for example, might be the place to start.
0: Yes, I mean, wolves carry massive kind of baggage with them because of all of the kind of traditional stories around the big bad wolf and stuff like that. So if we're looking at wolves... It's going to take a very long time, and I and I don't think that's remotely on the, the agenda just now. But lynx are a, a Labrador-sized kind of cat. They are secretive. They they prefer to live in forests. They're a stealth predator, so they will take deer in the forest. They're, you could be living next to a, a lynx and not even know it's there. So I've seen radio tracks of deer in, in and around a, a Burn in um, Switzerland, basically living in the equivalent of Hampstead Heath, and nobody knew they were there. So this is a species, I think, that we, where we could get used to the idea of a top predator coming back, but actually we'd never really know it's in our landscape. Now, there are always risks with a predator taking prey that we don't want them to, like lambs, and we have to manage that so that anybody that loses a lamb loses any of their kind of things that are really important to them because we have links in the landscape. We have to make sure that a, they they consent to the idea of links coming back as much, much as possible, and B, if the worst happens, we have a mechanism to make sure that they don't lose out. And that's tough. Uh, reintroduction, reintroduction of these animals isn't so much about the ecology, it's about the sociology of this and getting that right and getting people into a place where they accept that this is going to happen and they accept that living with predators creates a little bit of uncertainty, but most of the time you're never even going to know they're there. As well as uncertainty creates a lot
1: of magic i mean imagine Mm. walking through a regenerating caledonian forest and knowing that perhaps looking down at you from a tree is a is a mysterious lynx that you'll be very unlikely to actually see directly there have been other predator reintroductions in scotland for example the white-tailed eagle has been brought back from norway and Mm. is now thriving along the west coast and that that can be problematic white-tailed eagles which have an eight foot wingspan have been known to take lambs
0: Yes, I mean we we've been quite successful with with these large birds coming back back to Scotland, but there is now a growing controversy over white-tailed eagles because they are being seen to take some lambs, um, and we need to make sure that if lynx come back, that we have this mechanism to ensure that if anybody does lose a lamb because of a lynx that we can make sure that that risk is minimised as far as possible but also that there is a mechanism in place to make sure that they do not lose out I think that's so important Um, but yes we have done this already in Scotland But I think there's something different between birds and mammals. And I don't know why, but there just is. So the idea of a bird coming back seems a little bit easier than than these large mammals with these big teeth. And I think it's that sort of idea of a predator that's on the ground and the idea it might hurt or harm you. I'll just share my wolf experience, if you like. My one experience of seeing a wild wolf. So I was in the Dolomites uh, on my way to Scotland from Malta and I was walking up a track with my three dogs on the lead and this thing walked out from the undergrowth and I thought oh what's a German shepherd dog doing in this middle of nowhere in in Italy and I looked and I thought oh my goodness that is not a German shepherd that is uh, that's a wolf and this wolf looked at me looked at my dogs who were looking at it and then it just went oh okay human and just disappeared into the undergrowth and it left me there just completely gobsmacked that I'd seen this amazing predator and we just made eye contact and off off it went. And that to me showed me that these animals are not the dangerous things we think they are uh, and we can coexist with, the, with them. But for the UK, we have to make a conscious decision to do that, Ben, and that is socially very difficult. But we're working on it, and I hope that one day that we'll see lynx back in Scotland. I think that I think that's the kind of the next big question is we're welcoming beavers back now, big time. Can we welcome a predator like lynx back as well? That would be an amazing thing, and that would help us get to this idea of Scotland being a rewilding nation. Absolutely, Steve. Tell us a little bit about the scale
1: of the ecological restoration that's taking place across the African Highlands and how much woodland, how many trees are being physically planted out what does it look like around you at
0: the moment well afric highlands only really started as an initiative about a year ago but within afric highlands quite a lot of people and organizations have already been restoring their landscape so for example we own uh, an estate called dundragon which is um, uh, in the heart of afric highlands forestry own huge areas like the wonderful glen afric and those are examples of what you can do in a landscape if you try to rewild it. So we have um, transformed, you know, a huge area of, of Dundragon to wild forest over the last sort of 15 years or so. And forestry have been doing the same, making sure that the Caledonian forest comes back. But at the moment, we're just at the start of that process. And it's going to take us kind of 30 years, I would say, to onboard all the landowners and get this massive scale change that we need. If you want to see what that actually does look like on the ground go to somewhere like Glenfeshie in Cairngorms where Anders Paulson has been busy rewilding his land for quite some time and you just see after not that long when you reduce the deer pressure when you when you try to work with nature pine trees popping up everywhere and that's where we need to get to over uh, uh, the next 10 to 15 years starting to see the nature coming back but for African Highlands it's a process and it's a process of change working with people at the moment. So ask me in about three years and I'll be able to say we've restored this amount of land. But at the moment, it's thousands of hectares rather than tens of thousands just now. yeah.
1: And tree planting is important in places where there is no
0: seed source at all, right? Along the ridges
1: and so on. Is it? Is there, And what kinds of trees are you planting?
0: Yeah, so we, at Trees for Life, we've tried to look at wild trees as our way forward. So if there is a seed source, we try to fence off the land and reduce deer numbers and allow the trees to come back themselves but so much of scotland uh, is so degraded in terms of a seed source that we have to help it out a bit so we grow uh, ourselves things like pine trees to, obviously to restore caledonian pine woods and one thing we're particularly into is those trees those little tiny trees that sometimes won't get above waist height we call them the wee trees or the montane trees that would grow above the pine belt as you get to the top of the mountains this this montane habitat that we've almost completely lost from Scotland. So we grow a lot of dwarf birch and and very special willows that are really rare species because the deer love them so much. That's something we're particularly focusing on in in Trees for Life because we think we need that natural transition from forest to to kind of bare mountaintops.
1: And to what extent is this landscape connected with similar landscapes that are undergoing transformation miss cairngorm's connect and east west scotland wild and anders paulson's massive rewilding efforts at glen to what extent can these be joined up with corridors corridors for the links to move through for example when they do
0: return i, th- I think that's where we need to get to ben um Uh, There is quite a community of people involved in rewilding in Scotland and we have this thing called the Scottish Rewilding Alliance which is trying to bring everybody together and there are people working for example in the Cairngorms now thinking about how do we connect up these different pockets but what we need to do for East West Wild and it's now called Afric Islands, that's what it was originally called, the, the vision for me was how do we make sure that a red squirrel can get from Loch Ness to the west coast without touching the ground you know that that sort of connectivity we're also going to need that connectivity if we bring the links back so how can we plan change in the landscape so that we can link the cairngorms with afric highlands so there is this nature network in scotland very early days for that but there are some very good signs from even government that that sort of approach in scotland is something that would work So what's the Scottish government doing to
1: encourage the creation of native woodland and other ecosystems in in Scotland?
0: We've had a change in government in Scotland although you you might not have noticed it. We have a sort of a coalition between the Scottish National Party and the Greens and we have a Green Minister uh, who is responsible for nature and biodiversity and I would like to just give Lorna Slater credit because if it wasn't for Lorna, I don't think we'd be in a position now to be bringing back beavers big time in Scotland because it was a decision to do that, made by her and, and the Green Party. And that relationship is enabling more emphasis to be put on nature restoration. So there's a big nature restoration fund in Scotland that enables us to kind of restore the landscape. Scotland is looking at agriculture the same as as being looked at in England and what we can do in order to fund agriculture so that it delivers rewilding as well as food or sometimes instead of food. So it's moving for me, as a kind of somebody that's worked in this all my life, it feels like it's a bit slow, but Scotland is looking kind of quite seriously at how it can make this change so that it can lead on the restoration of nature, on on helping to solve this biodiversity crisis, as well as the climate crisis that we face.
1: And the Scottish Government's helping communities, um, to acquire land for, for restoration. I mean, Langham, for example, in the borders community, has bought. 10000 acres is it
0: quite recently with support from from the Scottish administration yeah that's true there's a sort of big land reform agenda in scotland so uh the scottish government i think feels that land ownership is concentrated in too few hands and that communities should also own areas of land as well so they helped the the langholm uh, initiative to buy essentially a, a large uh, grouse moor that's, uh, that's going to be rewilded and i would expect to see more of that over time as an organization that works in this sort of area of, of looking at estates and potentially trying to acquire them through wilding if we were to look at a acquiring another estate uh, in Scotland I think we would want to do that quite differently and do that in partnership with a community not just go out and buy it as has been the traditional way both for individuals and for organisations we need to find a way of bringing in the community so that they can really benefit from from the change that we're bringing
1: Steve I saw recently the most beautiful documentary called Riverwoods that that our mutual friend Pete Cairns and mm. and the the big picture Scotland people put together And it talks about the rewilding of rivers um, for the benefit of the salmon and trout and other migratory fish. How much of that is going on in African highlands and, and, and how big is the potential for river rewilding in the highlands? So what
0: Riverwoods is all about is trying to create essentially woodlands next to rivers and streams in, in Scotland. And the reason for that, there are many benefits of that, some of that is around providing shade, which actually enables uh, fish like salmon to spawn because they don't like warm water. But also it just diversifies the habitat. And of course, longer term, it will provide habitat for beavers. And in African Highlands, we plan to try and restore seven kilometres a year of these riverside woodlands. And we're just working now with the first landowners up. the highlands there to start that process so again by the end of this next year we'll be fencing off an area of, of land right next to these rivers and these burns and starting to plant trees to get the landscape away and then in time that will become a more natural woodland so it's a wonderful thing to do and it's creating this network it's creating these corridors linking things up as well so Planting woodlands next to rivers is, is a brilliant thing to do. Also can help with flood prevention. It can do so many amazing things. And yet we're just quite happy to just have have them completely bare. So that's a big another big initiative for Africa Highlands.
1: On the handful of occasions I've been lucky enough to visit the Highlands of Scotland, I've got to admit I've been disappointed. Because once you know how degraded these landscapes are, and once you can imagine what they might once have been, um, the whole thing then becomes um rather disappointing where where is the best place to go if we if we want to see wilder landscapes we want to see regeneration in action we want to
0: feel the rewilding happening around us where should we go go to Glen Affric and see the caledonian pinewood number one Go to Glenfeshie and see the landscape changing almost in front of your eyes these these wonderful little pine trees gradually growing away. I mean, those are two amazing places uh, that you can you can get into. Just have a look around the Cairngorms Connect landscape. That's that's a landscape in recovery, and then head up to the top of the Cairngorm and just look at, at what's happening beneath you but look beside you to see how that landscape used to be not that long ago. That contrast that you get when you see the restored landscape on one side of you and you look across often sometimes like a fence and you look to your right and you just see this landscape that is, Scotland is famous for. Yeah, it, it, it is quite, quite a shock when you think that's how Scotland should be and yet we celebrate this Scotland which is how it is and it's not natural. It, it's quite a stark contrast.
1: So if Scotland becomes one of the world's first rewilding nations with a huge expansion in native woodland cover and a restoration of peat bogs and the return of missing species and the emergence of a nature-based economy, it'll be in no small part down to your work, Steve. You're a a visionary and a hero, and I'm so lucky that you you spent this time with me. Thank you very, very much and look forward to coming to see you up north soon.
0: Yeah, come to the launch of the Rewilding Centre, Ben. That That would be really good. Yeah, we'll do that. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Ben.
1: More and more, it's being said that Scotland is going to be the world's first rewilding nation. Those huge, romantic Highlands landscapes are the place of extraordinary rewilding projects like the one we just heard about with Steve McElwhite. If you want to learn more specifically about the Afric Highlands project, visit Trees for Life online and consider supporting Steve's invaluable work. Well, that concludes this second series of Rewilding the World with me, Ben Goldsmith. If you've enjoyed these last six episodes, I'd be so grateful if you'd go onto whatever platform you use for listening to podcasts and leave us a review, spread the word among your friends. It all helps and we will be back with a new series before too long there are just so many stories popping up all over the world of rewilding efforts that are on a grand scale Uh, so we'll be looking for those and finding the best ones and bringing them to you rewilding the world is produced by my friends at the podcast coach and the music for this series was composed by jamie Tuthill and my cousin tristan powell and i'm so grateful to all of these people